Hey, I'm, I'm Jason. I am uh, one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting with us this weekend, Tim, who just did our announcements, is our normal speaker. I would encourage you to come back and understand the rhythm of how we do things here. But to get things started today, um, I want to, to remind you that we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're in a book that um, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, he wrote this book, and we're, we're, we're assuming at the end of his life, right? So you imagine this old, wise grandpa who like wants to sit you down and talk things that he has learned. There I am. <laughs> and in the process, we, we brought up this graphic because we, we were behind the scenes, we were kind of um, talking about some seasons of life that we have seen in ministry. And, and so this graphic is a way that we can kind of describe that. And, and hopefully, if you've been here, uh, you've seen it before, but I'm going to give you a quick rundown. Um, there, are, there are plateaus in our life where we seem to be doing okay. And maybe as a Christian, you, you would say these are the seasons that um, you're the most engaged in church or um, you've got your morality kind of in check, you know, like every, you, you, you're doing a good job, and then there are seasons where it seems like we sort of slide into a valley. And one of the common ones that I think a lot of us are familiar with is that one that happens right at the beginning of, of being a young adult, right? At college age, we see a lot of kids that are, are, they grew up in the church, they are part of the youth group, they seem like they have a solid faith, and then they go off to college, and they stumble a little, right? Sometimes they stumble a lot. And then it seems like when they have kids, they, they all of a sudden come back to church. Right? It's like it's, it's this thing inside of us that says, I remember how I grew up. I want that for my kids, and they come back. And maybe in that season, they're trying hard again. Maybe in that season, it feels like they've kind of, um, they've kind of come to their senses. Um, they're putting in the effort. Maybe they come to church all the time. And then um, there was this other season that we started to notice. And as, as the youth pastor, one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that about the time that your kids graduate high school, it seems like we lose a lot of families then too. That there's this big empty nest um, dip in life where it seems like we don't see you guys for a little while or, or a lot of you guys. And then you come back again and, and there's this rhythm, right? And, and we see this on and off, on and off, um, engagement or, or quality of life. And for you, it might not look like this. It might look more like the heartbeat monitor, right? Like you, you've had a lot of highs and a lot of lows, right? I see this same rhythm, though, in my life. Like uh, I was the kid that, that grew up in the, the high school youth group. I was part of the, the band. I was part of the core kids. And then as soon as I had some independence, as soon as I was out on my own, I flexed that independence. You know what I mean? Like, um, I, I remember, uh, so I was part of this, the car scene. And I mean, like, have you seen Fast and the Furious? Like that, right? Like those, those bright, loud cars that we all uh, hate. That was me. And so... <clears throat> But I remember, um, do, you, do you guys remember what it, what it means to drag north? Did anybody in here? Okay, so North Avenue is a, it's a road here in town, and, and we would drive up and down north. That was like the thing that we did. We would just drag back and forth, back and forth. I remember one summer night, and you know summer nights, right? They're warm. The sun's finally gone down. It's finally a comfortable temperature. We're parked in Hastings' parking lot. 
You guys remember Hastings? Right, like right, right in the middle of North Avenue. I'm sure we annoyed everybody who, you know, was in the area. But we, were, we all had our cool cars parked out there. And back then, um, uh, like every other cool car had a system in it. And I'm, sorry, I'm sure somebody's trunk was open. And it was like, boom, 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 boom. And, and it's warm. The music's playing. There's these cool cars. And then there was this girl. She was cute. Right? And, I, and I remember going up and, and talking to her. And do you know what? You remember that feeling whenever you like somebody and then you find out they like you back? Do you remember that? Like, that's like, a, is, man, isn't that fun? There's a kid like, uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> It'll happen, dude. All right. <clears throat> we ended up hitting it off. And, and for that season in my life, we had a lot of fun, right? And, and, and sometimes fun looked like, Tequila. Sometimes fun looked like a, a party over at her house, and her parents were okay with it, right? She still lived at home. Um, and that ended up where we would all stay the night. We had a, a lot of fun in that season. We were having a good time. And you guys know, like, if you, if you had that kind of a season, it's fun. But in that same season where I was having all that fun, That's the season where I did the most damage in life. I have friends now, or or people that were friends then, that I see at the gym and that I have to ignore. I keep my head down. I can't make eye contact with them because of how things went during that time, or maybe how I treated them, or how uh, we we had a falling out, right? Or this um, girl that I started dating, we, we ended up... It ended up being quite a relationship, and I can't tell you the damage that I did to this girl. The pain that I caused, some of the things that we went through together, right? And, and I hope that my kids never make some of the choices that I made in that season. And when we look back at these seasons in our life, isn't it true that they're often the ones where we have the biggest regrets? Right? And maybe for you, yours is a lot like mine, and you have some regrets about that season when you were in college age and you're finally out from under your parents' house. Maybe it's from that season of empty nest whenever there was an affair in your marriage. Or maybe it was when you finally had a chance to retire and go do some things that you've always wanted to do, but you moved away from your grandkids. And we've got some regrets. And a lot of times, if we were going to look at that chart, we would point to the low points on the chart as the seasons where we have the biggest regrets. But if I'm being honest, I think there's something ugly inside of me, I'm guessing in all of us, because even though I know where that season took me, I still feel the pull to the next one every once in a while. Right? Like for me, on the timeline of my life, my kids are about to graduate. And so I'm looking forward to more time and more money. And more time and more money means more golf, more toys, some me time. Have you ever, you ever thought that, like, hey, one of these days I'm going to get some for me? Right? Some me time. Why do we always reward ourselves? with selfishness. And if you're anything like me, selfishness turns into sin really fast. Why do we reward ourselves with selfishness and sin? 
See, for me, I think it's kind of like my, my goodness or my, my righteousness is like a dam that is holding back the sin in my life. It's like this, the, the only thing standing between my sin getting out in the world or not is, is my, my righteousness, my goodness. And then there are those moments when you first open the floodgate when you first crack open the dam and the water first comes spilling out that night whenever you meet the girl in the parking lot or the first party or the first trip you make or the first wink to that coworker. Something that's kind of fun about that moment, that water starts spilling out even though we know the damage that it can cause. And so I want to ask you guys a question. As we think about the timeline of our lives, if after you died, like let's just say 10 minutes, 10 minutes after you died, what if God gave you a chance to come back to you now? What would the you that just died say to the you now? What would you hear? I wonder what you'd have to say to yourself about these valleys or about the plateaus and about your life. That's the, the setting for the, the conversation that, we're, that Solomon's going to have with us today. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And while you're turning there, just a reminder, um, we spent the early part of this book, the first four or five chapters, um, going through Solomon's sort of um, lament about life, right? And, I, and if you were here, like, was some of that depressing to you? Right, like whenever I'm, in, I'm here and, and, and I hear Solomon talking about that life is, a, is like vanity, it's like, it's like trying to grab smoke. It, it just, it seems like you can't ever get anywhere. It's so hard to figure out this life. And for, for chapter after chapter, we've heard Solomon kind of exposing that. And then it's like he switches gears here. And, and Ephesians, or Ecclesiastes 7 is, is written kind of like Proverbs, where we have these short, pithy statements. And it's as if he says, after all of that, he's like, but there is a way to live life. Can we talk about that? And so we get started in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. And so he, get, he starts with this idea that smelling good is not as good as having a good reputation, unless you're in youth group. And then I want you to wear deodorant, boys, okay? But in general, in life, right, he says, look, he says this precious ointment, your, your translation might say a fine perfume, right, that you can do some things to change the way that strangers perceive you when you walk in the room, Right? You, you can work out, and you could be the, the most fit person. You could have that biolage treatment in your hair, right, that's really expensive and looks really pretty. You, guys, you could have all the right drip. You could have the perfect, like, outfit on. You could have $200 cologne on. And when you walk in the room, people are like, ooh, who's that? And what difference does that make when the people that know you hear your name and they go, oh, what difference does it make when the people that know you hate you? See, there, there's a lot that we can do to change the way that strangers perceive us, but there is something that's better than that, right? Having a good reputation. The people that know you like you. It's good. And so he, he compares these two things, and then he goes on to use that comparison, and he says, and the day of death 
than the day of birth. I wonder if he wrote that backwards. Right, like, is, is Solomon losing his mind at the end of his old age? Like, maybe he's got some dementia, right? And he's, he's just writing things backwards. Like, I think he's a little crazy. That doesn't make any sense that the day of death would be better than the day of birth, right? Because people dread the day of death. Most of us are not looking forward to that day. People worry about it. They fret about dying, but I want you to, to think for just a minute. What could he mean? Think about birth for a minute. Most of you guys were born. I'm going to guess, right? Okay, so, and if not, you've, you've, seen, you've seen it happen. Okay, so um, when you think about birth for a minute, you think about why are we so happy when a baby comes into the world? Why is that such a good day? Because we look at that little precious baby and we don't just see this alien-looking, crying creature, right? Okay, let's admit it. Babies are cute at about week one, right? Day one, okay. So, but we look at that precious little baby, and it's not the baby. It's, it, it's the hopes. It's the potential for this baby. The amazing life that I hope that you have, right? It's my hopes and dreams for my child. We're so excited, right? Like, I swear, I finished my sermon prep uh, Friday, and then I, I got home, and when I got home, my wife had all of our baby pictures spread out on the bedroom floor. I don't know if you guys ever do that at home. It's like a, you like unbox everything and just look. And she's, she's sitting there literally like they're on her lap, like just in a pile of pictures, and she cries a little bit about this one. Like, oh, I, I want to go back to these days. And then she looks at this one. She's like, I don't want to go back to that day. <laughs> right, like... Right? But we, we, we have this tendency to look back at that. And then she found this journal. It was a prenatal journal. It was, it was a journal for like mommy's thoughts while baby was in the womb. Right? And it had all these prompts in it. What was happening in the world at this time? And did you pick out a name? And then she got to one prompt in there that said, what are your hopes and dreams? And she came out into the living room and sat down next to my 17-year-old son and read him the hopes that she had for him whenever he was still in the womb. And she's like, I hope that you have a vibrant faith in Jesus. I hope that you know you can change the world. What a cool moment, right? My son's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, I was watching YouTube. What are you doing? <laughs> but... We, we have this thing in us that we look at a little baby and we're like, you, I want so much for you. It's all about the hopes. It's all about the potential. But think about death for a minute. At death, the conversation is about what actually happened. It's about the things that they got to accomplish. It's about the, the days that God gave them, the opportunities that they had. It's no longer about potential. It's about reality. And if you're here and you're a believer, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then that moment, there literally is no more potential. There are no more hopes because all of those things are sure and fulfilled as you walk into the presence of your Savior in heaven. There isn't a better day than that. And Solomon recognizes that and he says, just like a good reputation is better than smelling good, smelling good's cool, the day of death should be better than the day of birth, even though birth is cool. 
Now, with that as the backdrop, this idea that death is better than birth, now imagine you after death gets to have this conversation. It says, now let's talk about life. Verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And so what he does here is he begins to lay out two different ways through life. And one of them is better. You notice we're going to see several verses here where he talks about better, better. There is a better way. And what he says here is that funerals are better than parties. And again, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I've been to some birthday parties that are difficult, but like, there's cake, right? Like, like does he know it? Maybe he, again, maybe he's a little bit confused. Funerals are better. What did he possibly mean? Here's what I think he means. Funerals are better than parties because something happens at a funeral that never happens at a party. You spend some time with your own mortality at a funeral. And listen, I've been to a bunch of different funerals, and some of them feel very appropriate, right? It's the end of a long life lived. They died in their sleep. And I've been to a funeral of a 17-year-old that overdosed. And at both ends of that, I had to spend a moment in that room realizing I'm going to die. This journey is going to end. And so funerals are better than parties because you're never going to learn that at a party. I've never been at the party and the music's bumping and the lights are low and there's some kid in the corner just by himself like, huh, I guess I just realized like this is all going to end one day. <laughs> Maybe he took something weird. I mean, but in general, that happens at funerals but not at your kid's birthday party, right? He keeps going. Verse 3. He says, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And now he says, sorrow is better than laughter. And I think that that's true only because sorrow is a better teacher than laughter. Has sorrow ever taught you anything? Have you ever gone through something hard or difficult, but you learn something. See, that's the problem, is that it is hard, it, it is difficult, and we don't like that, do we? We don't like the, the difficult. And so again, he's, he's saying there are two ways. There is the wise way that says, let sorrow do its work in you. That there is a moment to actually feel pain, to feel some sadness, because it could do something in you that could create an outcome that is worth having. Or there's the fool's way, which is to ignore it and to party. And listen, I did some things in that season that we were talking about a minute ago where I hurt some people. And I tried to run to the house of mirth, right? I tried to just party it away. I tried to distract myself and have fun instead of dealing with the pain that I had caused or the pain that I was feeling. And I learned nothing while I was there. But the moment that I had to step into that pain and acknowledge the sorrow in my life, or the pain that I had caused, that's the moment that I grew. Sorrow is better 
than laughter. And listen, I, I think that this happens all the time, that we would hide behind laughter and ignore pain. And I think that it happens all the time in the church. There are people that are here today that came in here full of sorrow. Or maybe you're mourning something. Or you have some sadness. And maybe it's because of something that you did. Maybe it's something that's happening around you or to you. And it's not even in the past. It was this week. But you ignore it and you put on a happy face. We all have a church face, right? Maybe you're here and your marriage is not okay. But you pretend like it is. Right? It's like your whole house is burning down around you, and then whenever you leave, you just spray some Febreze on your clothes and hope that nobody smells the smoke. Some of you would rather pretend and burn than be honest and face the fire. And Solomon is saying there is a better way or there's a foolish way through life, and the better way says that sorrow can do something, I should probably experience it. Let's keep going. Verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. He's saying it's better to have real friends. Like real friends. If I say that, do you even know what that, that means? Is that true in your life? That you have real friends? Friends, like somebody who would say, I smell smoke. Are you guys okay at home? Or somebody that would say, yeah, I think that there is a problem. It's you. Do you have anybody in your life that loves you enough to rebuke you? Because that is better than a bunch of friends who will ignore the problem with you. They get out their own Febreze. You smell funny. Psst, psst, psst. See, I think our culture around us is screaming that we should celebrate each other's choices. That the best way to be friends is to just go along. Whatever you're doing, I'm on board. And that's the foolish way. And then he goes on to describe a pot. And now, if you were out in the woods and, and you were camping and you needed to boil some water, right? you would set a pot and then you would build a fire under it. And you could grab a log... And you could get that log caught on fire, and it would burn and burn and burn. Even when it's embers, it's still hot enough that it's boiling the water. Or you could go grab some thorns and some weeds and some kindling, and you could throw them underneath the pot, and you could light it, and it would light, and it would pop, and it would crack. You'd have this really great fire for about two seconds, and then it would fizzle out. And it would never actually do the work the fire was supposed to do. And in the same way, having friends that just help you laugh all the time don't accomplish the work that friends are supposed to accomplish in your life. You should have people in your life that help actually do the thing, which is to make you better. And so, in all of these verses, I think what we see is, is Solomon has pointed out that there is a better way that wisdom is the better way. And, and wisdom says there are going to be some hard but super valuable parts of life. 
you're going to die. Live like you're going to die. There's going to be times of sorrow and, and mourning, and those are the times you're going to grow the most if you let it happen. Don't ignore them. And so we see these two ways, wisdom and ignoring things, or escapism. Wisdom and escapism. And so what we're going to see in these next few verses is Solomon's going to give us four examples of what escapism looks like in our lives. Okay? Let's read them. Verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And say not, where were the former, or why were the former days better than these? For is it not wisdom that you're asking this? Four examples of escapism, and, and I want to focus on just one of them, right? We've, we've got money, money, like when there's money around, we have a tendency to kind of take the easy route, right? Or, or when we're being impatient, we have a tendency to take the easy route. When, there's, when we have a chance to be angry, we, we're, we're like justified in that. But let's talk about nostalgia for a minute. Did you catch that last one? Why were the former days better than these? Now listen, in, in an upwardly mobile part of an upwardly mobile city in Colorado, in the USA, in 2023, most of us have had a pretty good life right? Most of us are probably living a pretty good life now, and yet, don't we all talk about the good old days? Right? Don't you have a, a favorite part of life, and it's not today? How many of you Gen Xers in the room have ever said that you wish you grew up in the 50s or 60s? Like, I, I remember thinking that, that like, man, I was just born like 20 years too late. This would have been really cool back then, right? My, my son Noah... He tells me he wishes he grew up in the 80s. <laughs> he bought an 80s sports car, right? Like, and the reason is because I've talked about the 80s, and he's like, oh, that sounds amazing. If he only knew how horrible the 80s were, right? The problem is we romanticize the past, don't we? We like to romanticize or remember things that were just amazing. And I think the problem is not that the past was so good. It's a combination of a poor memory and a good imagination, right? And we remember it better than it ever was. And what's crazy is that was true when Solomon wrote this. The king who had more wisdom than anybody had ever had, he had more gold than he could find, right? He had all of these projects, he did all of this cool stuff, he had all these women, he had every experience you could possibly have, and he's like, Boy, do you remember the good old days when we were just shepherds? There's just something in us where we romanticize the past and it helps us escape the present. It's as if we can't spend any time here because we're too busy worrying why it's not like it was. It's not like back in the day when Christianity was normal in America. Boy, these days are hard now. It's not like it was back in the day when I could speak my mind without everybody getting offended. Right? Don't we do that? Don't we talk about how today's not as good as it was before? Solomon keeps going. Verse 11. Wisdom 
is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. And so again, he's kind of wrapping all this up and he says, wisdom is the better way. And he's had a chance to try all the things and he has found out, like if I, if I had to pick, let's do it the wise way. But we know that, right? How many of you guys are surprised to hear that there is a right and a wrong way to live life? Come on. And this life is set up in such a way that if we live wisely, we're going to get the most out of it, right? Like the right inputs produce the right outputs. And, and apparently God has set it up that like if I just apply some wisdom and if I do things right, then I'm going to get the best outcome out of it. But Solomon's not done. Let's keep going. Verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now remember the context here. Like literally the last verse before this was, you're going to want to live wise. You're going to want wisdom. That's the better choice. Very next verse, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Wisdom is the better way, but there are some things that wisdom cannot help you with. And see, here's the thing. I think we have this tendency to want to acquire all the wisdom, to figure out the right way to do things, to orchestrate the best possible life so that we can make crooked roads straight. So that we can look forward in our life and we can see the speed bump coming and we go, get that speed bump out of here. I don't want to go around this corner. I want to see where I'm going. Can we straighten out the road? We have a tendency to think that with our wisdom, we're going to produce the path through life that we want. And Solomon says, who's going to make straight the things that God makes crooked? If God wants you to turn left, you're going to turn left. And then verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And so we have the, the wisest man on earth. And he says, I still can't undo what God does. I still can't straighten the road that God puts before me. I still can't avoid the day of adversity. Bad things still happen. We sure try, don't we? Isn't that what wisdom is for in our life, is to adjust and to situate our lives in such a way that we get the best outcome? But did you catch? He didn't just say here that the day of adversity comes. He says that God has made that day too. In our wisdom, it's as if we say, I think I've got this all figured out. I can do better than God. That he would send a day your way that you'd say, I think I can figure out how to not have that day. That he would turn the road for you and you'd say, I think I can go straight here. And it's like God is that real friend, that real friend. And he says, you need this speed bump. You're going to need this day of adversity. I know you're not going to like it. I know you don't want to go through this, but you need it, friend. And then he goes on, and I don't know if you guys like preachers that cry. <laughs> I, 
I hope you do. I own the website, cryingpastor.com. Okay. Um, I hope that you like that, but, but I don't know if that's your thing or not. What's weird is we're about to see that moment in Solomon, the wisest guy who ever lives, granddad who sat you down to give you this kind of life lesson, and we're going to see him just get worked up. Okay, so check this out, verse 15. He says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. You ever seen that? Have you ever seen that person who, like, like this kid that grew up in my youth group, a few years later, he's died of an overdose. How is that fair? That doesn't make sense. And then I see these old perverts that are still just living life with all their toys and their, their fun, and their, they're healthy. Like, it doesn't make sense. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, when I first read that, my, the way that that reads to me is he's saying, don't be overly righteous, don't try to be up here all the time, and, and don't be overly wicked, don't try to be down here all the time, almost like that graphic. It's like he's saying, look, stop putting so much effort into being on the plateau, but try not to hang out in the valley. It's like he's saying, let's find this middle ground. That is not what Solomon is saying Okay? Notice what he did say. He said, be not overly righteous. Over, like, how could you be too much, right? And, and he says, don't make yourself too wise. I don't think that Solomon is saying, stop trying to be right in the eyes of God. I think that he is saying, stop trying to be so self-righteous that you would be working so hard to play the game just right to get the outcome that you want. Because I think that the, the near enemy of actually experiencing what God has for us is thinking that we can get that same thing without God. I'll just be good. I'll just be righteous. I will just get enough wisdom. And the idea here is that if you're trying to live on that plateau so that you can get the outcome that you want in life, then it's all about you and your control. And he says, that will destroy you. That that pursuit of being in control and putting in all of this effort to look right and to, to try to be right and to try to have all of the wisdom to manage your life, all of that pursuit, if it's all about you controlling the outcome, it's going to just chisel away at you because you're going to realize you don't have that much control in the first place. That, that you're trying to create an outcome that you're never going to create, and you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And so no wonder we spend time on a plateau, and then we go, all right, I've had about enough of that. Where's the party? Where's the, the trip that I deserve? Where's the affair that I've been putting off while my kids were at home? Where's the... When we take these dives down into the valleys... And here's the problem. I think in, in western Colorado, reliance on... Anyone or anything else is bad, right? Like self-reliance is a virtue here. And we like to say, I don't need help. I'll just try my best to stay on the plateau. 
And we play the game so well that we don't need God. And he says, that'll destroy you. And then he says, now, the other problem is you take a dive off that cliff and you become overly wicked and that will destroy you too. That that'll chip away at your soul because you were never meant to live like that. That was not your calling in life. And so you'll find that those are the seasons you regret the most and some of you gets torn away every single time. And so he moves on after that in verse 18 and he says, it is good that you should take hold of this and from that not withhold your hand. In other words, he's saying, I want you to get both of these truths in your mind. I want you to hold both of these things, that you can destroy yourself trying to chase self-righteousness and you can destroy yourself by letting yourself be wicked. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. God wants you to come out from both of those things. And I love this. I looked up this phrase, come out, and I, I wanted to see where else it showed up in the Bible. And it shows up in Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, when God sends Moses back into Egypt to get the nation of Israel, that they would come out to him. That they would be delivered from Egypt. And he's saying here, that the, the person who fears God would be delivered from the cycle itself, from both of them. Not just from those seasons where you had the most regret, but from the plateaus where you're striving so much because you want to control the outcome. He wants you to get off of the cycle, both ends of it. And a few verses later, he wraps all this up. Verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it? He says, look, wisdom is the better way, but even wisdom has limitations. God has put limitations in life things that are beyond your understanding and your control. Even wisdom itself has a limitation so that you will never get to a point where you don't need God. Wisdom is the better way. It's, it teaches us things like learn from the darkness. Like live like you're gonna die. Stop trying to escape and ignore your problems. Find some real friends and that is the better road. But at the end of that road, you're still gonna find out that you need God. So I'm going to put something up on the screen. You will never not need God. Hear me, Christians. You're never going to not need him. It's not that you just needed God to get started, that you just needed to get saved from your sin, that you just needed his grace. You will always need him. He set it up that way. And that makes sense to me now. Because there are things in my life that I can't explain I can't explain why some of my extended family that are Christians, we can't all get along. I can't explain why a kid that was in my youth group would go on to die from an overdose. And there are some sorrows that I've experienced that are my fault, and I can't fix them. Girlfriends that I've hurt, friends that I've abandoned. 
And there are things in life that aren't fair, and I can't do anything about them. There are children that are dying in sex slavery on the other side of the world, and I can't save them. There are people all around the world that are being tricked into counterfeit religions that are taking them to hell, and I can't talk to all of them. I will never not need God. But what I love here is it's like Solomon exposes this problem that we're all trying to control the outcome of our life and God set it up that you would never not need him. And then we realize how true it is in our life. Solomon sets up this problem and Jesus answers it. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 11. It's going to be familiar to you, but I want you to hear it with new ears. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest for your soul. How many of you want that? Right? Do, do, are you experiencing rest for your soul? Because whenever I think about all the things in life that I can't control, it doesn't make me have rest. I realize I'm not God, but it freaks me out. And Jesus says, what if I carried those for you? What if? It's like he's inviting us to realize that it's not up to us in the first place. That the same truth that says, I will never not need God, on the back end means that I get to need God. I get his help. You were never supposed to carry some of the burdens that you're carrying, and it's because you were trying to do something you were never supposed to do in the first place. You're trying to control outcomes that you were never supposed to control. And so, as we wrap all this up, what I think Solomon would hope for us is that we would learn to love the limitations of life. I'm going to invite Winston to, to come up, and we're going we're to close service a little bit different than we normally do. I think that, that God has put limitations in life, and on one hand, they expose what we can't control. And on the other hand, they show you that there are things that you were never supposed to control in the first place, that you've been carrying. And there is freedom in resting in the fact that you're not God. We spend all of this effort trying to control the outcome of our life, trying to be our own God, and at the same time we pick up burdens that we were never supposed to carry, and there is freedom in letting that go. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to have a, a moment of confession and repentance in our lives. Before we even leave here today, what I want to do is in, in just a moment, we're going to bring the lights down, and Winston's going to be playing in the background. I'm going to invite, if you're, if you're here and you're part of our ministry team, when the lights go down, I'd love for you to come up front. And I'm going to ask you a series of questions that I would like for you to answer while you're sitting there. Because there's freedom in resting in the fact that you're not God. And yet how many of us act like we're in control? And we freak out when it doesn't work. 
And so if we could bring the lights down. If you want to come up front to our ministry team and be prayed with, that's great. If you want to be alone in your seat, that's fine. But let me ask you a question. What are some areas in your life that you're ignoring? Do you have an area of life where your house is on fire and you should smell like smoke, but you do your best to put on a good face? Is there something in life that you're just running to the laughter to cover up? doesn't take all that long for something to come to mind, does it? That there is sorrow or pain and that we're not choosing the better way. We're choosing to escape something that we've done or something that we carry, something we don't want to acknowledge. Are there areas of your life that you're ignoring and that God wants you to actually experience so that you could grow out of it? What are some areas of your life that you're trying to control? And let's go a little deeper than where, where your mind probably went. I don't mean the normal things that you're trying to control. Is there an area of life where you have been playing the Christian game expecting an outcome? If I just go to church three times a month while my kids are little, then they're going to grow up to be... If, if I just tithe enough times, um, then I'm going to have this... Security, what? are you trying to manipulate and play the game in self-righteousness for the sake of control? That doesn't take me very long to think of something either. Last question. What are some burdens that you're carrying that you're not meant to carry? Are you carrying something that only God is supposed to carry? Some thing that's out of your control. Something that you can't fix. Is the fact that you're not God exposing in you that you're holding on to things that God's supposed to hold on to? Because Jesus' invitation, look, if you're here and you have put your faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross, then that invitation to be yoked to your Savior that he would carry the weight, it's for you. Is there a burden that you're not supposed to carry that you haven't let go of? Now, what we're going to do is a little different. I'm not going to ask you to stand. If you want to sing, you can sing. But I want you to hear the words of this song sung over you. Hear the truth, and I will be up in just a moment.